Hello and welcome to the Legends of Tabletop podcast. We're getting ready to jump into episode 189. I've got Alan Barr with me today from Gallon Night Games. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing well. It's been uh, an extremely long time since we've had you on the show, so I'm glad to have you back. Yeah, it's been oof, 2016. Oh, it's been a long time. <laughs> I think so. It was my second. It was a Mechas of Monsters, right? I think so. Yeah, it was like our yeah, episode, sorry, which was my second Kickstarter. So yeah, it's been yeah, a while. Yeah. <laughs> so the the reason this all came about, I you know, for the audience, I guess, um, Alan was on the Fandible podcast, which is one of my absolute favorite podcasts of all time. Oh, they're great. Uh, he ran a a demo of Heirs of Heresy, and I listened to it, and you know, of course, they're great. Um, you know, Alan, you know, ran a great game and I was like, wow, this system is super interesting. I really like the take on this. I, you know, I liked them. I was just completely intrigued. I went out, bought the book right away. It was on pre-order, I think still at that time, or, or just getting ready to come out. Uh, and I rarely order books like sight unseen or, you know, not having done any other research, but I was like, I have to have it. So I had to have Alan on to talk about it. <laughs> Well, uh, happy to be here. Happy to talk about it. I'm glad it went so well. I love the folks at Bandable. They have been, they've ran a few of my games and every time it's just a joy to listen to. And they've had me on a couple times to play with them, which has been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're great. And there's a link for the actual play of that in the show notes. If anybody wants to check that out, it's down below. Oh, so, so how have you been? How have things been with COVID? How are you holding up? You know, what yeah. how's things? Uh, overall, I would say things are good. Um, yeah, COVID hit. Uh, my wife and I moved cross country a couple months later. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> uh, to North, I, I grew up in North Dakota and we actually moved back to North Dakota, not to where I grew up, but just her, her job changed and we came out here for her to work. I, nothing to do with me actually kind of happenstance. Um, so I'm back in North Dakota, uh, which is great in some ways. Uh, I love it. I'm a, I'm a country country boy at heart. So, you know, less people, less, less everything. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we we're doing adoption. We're adopting. Um, oh, nice. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. We're excited. We're moving along that process. So we're adopting an older kid. So the process is a little different. It's never quite what you know, coming mm -hmm. into. Right. Um, so, but that's been a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of everything else, I would say, probably it's you know, yeah, yeah. the hard process for everybody involved. Wow, that's uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just we're, we're doing that. We moved and you know, we're just kind of weathering COVID. Wife works in logistics, so it's been kind of hectic over there. Yeah, is she able to work from home at all or no? No, she actually works for HR in logistics. Oh, yeah, so she's in the office dealing with like people who get COVID or people, drivers who are driving and things like that. Right. Like, yeah, so it's been right. pretty hectic the last two years for her. I think she's ready for a nice year long vacation. <laughs> yeah, <I'll bet. laughs> everybody, everybody in the plan is ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, you know, we've been good. How have you been? Good, good. Hanging in. I, yeah. Never, nothing really changed for me. Uh, you know, sure. I'm essential work. I work at a mine site. So, uh, you know, I've been at work the whole time. We're pretty much spaced out. I work in the lab, so, um, okay. you know, I'm, I'm not next to anybody necessarily during the day. You know, we have mass requirements, all that stuff. I'm vaccinated. You know, we went at, they offered it at work, which is great. Uh, you know, went down on lunch and got jabbed up, took the kids down, you know, so we're, 
and you know all of our games are online i mean this is this is what we do to socialize so like i had i had no online games before uh covid and now all my games are online um which is which was one of the reasons I made moving so easy was all my social life had already transitioned online. Yep. And so when we moved, I was like, all right, this is already how I'm talking to everybody. <laughs> this is how we're already playing our games for the most part, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, but yeah, other than that, you know, just trying to truck along, keep moving. The world's crazy and it seems like it's throwing me a new curveball every day, but you know, he powered mm-hmm. through. Now that has you know with with uh, you know like shipping delays and all that yeah. sort of stuff has that affected you know you as a business owner have you seen any of that sort of stuff yeah. absolutely we we mostly print books and we've always printed in the United States so we haven't had to deal with the rising freight costs from China um, which you know I, it was one of those happy I look a lot smarter than I really am moments <laughs> right where we always printed in the U.S. because. I, I I never wanted to like risk something going wrong or not being able to check the. We always print locally with like local printers, so I can go down and see how things are going. Because um, that's the I'm that kind of paranoid, you know. Right. Trying to be the jerk who's like in there every day, like how's it going? How's it going? But you know, it's it's nice to know if there's an issue, you can run down there. Right. Um. And so when this all hit, I was like, whoa, I'm prepped. We were ready. We were doing this. We're good. Uh, my printers like me. We have a long relationship, so they're not. Uh, you know, we've we've been hit by rising paper costs. We've been hit by shipping delays cross country of pallets or things like that. But you know, well, it's been frustrating and it's been hard. It's definitely been less uh, less impactful than it's been on some of my colleagues and friends who you know make board games and are printing in China or whatever. You know, yeah, so. yeah you can't get away from it there. So yeah, we've seen we've seen some hiccups. You know, we we took a nosedive on printing a book that we funded before the pandemic, and then paper costs went up, and we'd already taken the money uh, through Kickstarter. So you know, we took a we took a hit there. We took a hit on shipping a couple times, but you know, stuff you can kind of work around and move through. So, right. And, and have you gotten any feedback from 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 players, from fans, from consumers of RPGs that you know they're either upset or you know show support you know for you know small you know because all RPG, like if you're not, you know, wizards, if you're not Chaosium, right. like it's usually just a couple of people, right? So, like, you know, I think I mean, people tend to forget sometimes that, like, hey, this is like one guy doing a thing. For the, I, I have been lucky. I've got a really great community that we get to interact with for Gallant Night Games, um, and they've been really patient with all the delays, which were frustrating, but relatively minimal because you know really once the pdf's out it's just a matter of waiting for the book to show up and and sometimes it takes a couple weeks longer but you know it's coming because the pdf is here right um the real the only time we really had to make a major concession was uh everybody we there was that you remember in march last year where everybody's kind of there was like this week where just everybody was suddenly working at home right just kind of a couple of companies did it and then it snowballed up and Mm -hmm. everybody was working from home um that was right in the last week of our tiny cthulhu kickstarter (laughs) <laughs> um, and so I had to come in and say, look, things are changing. I don't know what the deal is. Uh, we're going to, we've already hit these two stretch goals, but we're going to cancel them, uh, because we want to have a cushion. We want to make sure, you know, we're prepared for any crazy eventualities. We don't want to go stretch too thin. Yeah. Everybody was super great with that. They're like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. We'd rather get the game and, you know, know you guys are going to make another game and then, you know, have an issue. Yeah. 
take, take um, a complete bath and break the bank. Just right. Yeah. No. And, and it was more, it was more of a conversation that we had planned to do these two stretch goals. Technically we were going to unveil them today in hindsight, you know, or in lieu of everything we're going to, we've made the decision to say, we will get to them when we get to them. But right now we're going to focus on, you know, having a financial cushion in case something else goes wrong. Um, so, and, you know, fulfillment delays, things like that, but everybody for the most part has been pretty patient pretty cool. considerate you always have and it's like anything right you got the really vocal loud guys but they're the minority right those angry right. customers are always a they're hard to ignore because they're so vocal. <laughs> so vociferous and, and it feels like a lot of them but you know you got to remind yourself in the mirror every morning there's only like you know, there's a half dozen i just gotta you know yeah and, and generally speaking they're actually not that bad for us so yeah, I find it's hard for me to judge sometimes, like, you know, being at least tangentially, you know, related to, to you know, industry stuff, yeah. right? Like, my, my perception is different. Like, I don't care. Just, like, give me a book. If it's, you know, a year late or two years late, I don't care. I know that it's going to be done well. Um, you know, I, 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 the, the delays don't bother me as much because I know, right? Like, it's just you or it's just Oscar and, like, two other people at Golden Press, right? So, like... Right. You know, if you have some sort of a relationship, whether it's as a consumer, like, you know, for me as a friend and, you know, right. podcaster and whatever, you know, it, it, it skews the perspective. So, like, you know, for me, yeah. it's like, yeah, fuck it. Take as much time as you want. But, like, that's not most people. Well, and I think it's definitely harder. And I I see it more. You know, we, we still have problems. We still get some of this. But I see it more with people who are running their first or second Kickstarter nowadays over the last few years because even when the pandemic hit we had over 20 kickstarters under our belt people knew yeah. we knew what we were doing we were you know we weren't just doing something for the first time and having all these additional hurdles we had a process and now we were just adding new processes to overcome new hurdles right i i see it more and i've seen it on some of my colleagues and friends kickstarters where you know the world's crazy and they're like look i lost my job or you know family stuff or whatever it's gonna be late and people you know are relentless for a five or ten dollar pledge they're like no i'm gonna pound you on social media every day about my thing yeah. and to me that's just totally it's like i get it you were you you paid money on a kickstarter to get something and i but also, like, if you pay 10 bucks, it's like, what, two cups of coffee, three cups of coffee? If you go to one cup, if you go to a really nice place, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, at a certain point, you can get that 10 bucks back, right? Or it's just 10 bucks. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Sometimes you lose a $10 bill out of your pocket, right? So, it, you know, every time I've had an issue, I've been able to say, look, you know, we're just people on the other side of the equation here. Yeah, our social media account has a picture of our logo and says, doesn't say Alan, it says whatever. Gallon again, right? But I'm still just just me and my wife doing it. Like we we pack our boxes in our garage and ship them out. Like this is not like we're we're not you know some thirty person company with a warehouse. We're two people making it work. And yeah. every time I've had to come back with that, people generally you know if it's been really bad, they usually apologize. And honestly, I've taken the I've taken a non public policy of if somebody is really frustrating or difficult, I just refund them and move on. Hmm, that's not I just, bad either. I, I call it, they call it firing the customer, right? And I just like, I'm done. <laughs> We're done here. Here's your money back. Well, it's not worth the stress and the aggravation, right, especially like, for five or 10 bucks or whatever. Well, right. And you're like, yeah, I paid 10 bucks. And I'm like, great. 
I made three of that, right? So here's your 10 bucks back. It's not worth it for three bucks because that's what I'm going to get in my pocket today. Uh, but the gaming communities have been generally, I think, for the most part, remain relatively supportive and positive, and that's something I've appreciated over the last two years. Right, and it's and it's a and it's a part of the sense of the community, right? I mean, because it is mm-hmm. a highly social thing. You're playing with friends. You're right. you know you're supporting locals. You're supporting you know indie creators and stuff. So like it it is kind of baked in a little bit into the whole zeitgeist of you know buying and playing role playing games. Right, exactly. So you know. I think in a, I think in a lot of ways, this particular hobby or industry was better equipped to handle what was happening, as well as worse equipped to handle what was happening. Right, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is interesting, but I do think you know that has played into it. And, and have you seen an uptick with the COVID stuff? Like I remember in tw- in uh, two thousand nine, you know, we had the downturn. You know, things like comic books and movie mm. sales and music, like all that stuff went up because like you couldn't go on vacation. You couldn't do right. you know, a lot of things. A lot of people lost jobs and, you know, money, wealth evaporated. So, so those sort of like hobby things, yeah. those, those smaller, um, uh, we, uh, we definitely our Kickstarters aren't, I wouldn't say are doing dramatically better. Um, they're about where they were ish. Um, we are, our post Kickstarter online sales have been stronger though. But this is counterbalanced, I'll point out, by the fact that, you know, for six to eight months last year, most local game stores were closed. We yeah. didn't generate any revenue from local game stores. So, yeah, the the sales went up. But, you know, when I do my end of year analysis, it was up overall, but it wasn't as up as it seems because we had the offset losses from we weren't in stores or conventions for a year. And in some places, that's still the case, right? And stores might be open now, but they can't get stuff or we can't get stuff to the stores through our distributors because of logistics issues. So we're kind of in this weird place where, hey, this is going really well over here, <laughs> but this part isn't. And well, it's not undermining all this good stuff. It's definitely, you know, you're like, oh, we, we doubled our sales over here. Yeah, but we lost an equivalent of 50% of that over here. So really, we only went up 50%, right? Yeah. yeah. And those are just totally made up numbers. But uh, so it, it's one of those things where it's not, I have to remind myself, it's not as good as it looks on paper sometimes, but it's also not as bad as it looks on paper, right? I feel like the last few years have been this, like, me learning to walk the middle road of, mm-hmm. like, expectations on anything now. I'm like, well, it's not as bad as it could be, but it's not as good as it could be. <laughs> I feel like that's just a like, little space I now have to exist in every time I think about work or business stuff. Right, right, and and then the big seller too, you know, with, with cons, you know, all the cons being pretty much canceled last year, and then just a handful of cons this year. Like that's that's the money maker, you know. You go out, you set up a table, you you know, press well, the flash, you you know, show and you, the games. You generate a lot of work that way. You know, we meet artists who we hire, we meet freelancers we work with. People bring us game pitches we publish, like you know, it's all that stuff kind of goes away. Yeah, um, but you, we make do. The internet's uh, if this had happened, you know. 25 years ago, I think it'd have been a lot worse in some ways. Yeah. yeah, because, yeah for sure. you know, The internet has made, made it easier for me to continue to sell my games without stores or conventions um, and continue to interface with people or find new artists or authors or whatever. So in some ways it's been, the internet has made this a lot easier in some ways it's made it worse. Cause now I doom scroll everything and I'm just yeah. constantly like, don't just keep all the social media close. I don't need to, I need to work today. Not to think about how everything's on fire. You're right, right. 
<laughs> Do you have any cons coming up? I know the uh, they're doing uh, packs uh, east of the Philly one, the board game one. Uh, unplugged, yeah. Unplugged. Yeah. That's in December. We're not going. Um, the For fa- family reasons with the adoption stuff, we're unable to travel during that time. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I have. I am going to Ice and Dice in Cincinnati, and I believe it's in the back half of uh, January. I don't have the dates in front of me, but it's coming up. Um, sure, sure, sure. I am one of their guests there, so we'll have a table. I will be there. Um, I think a few of my uh, some of the writers we work with a lot are local, and they're coming out to hang out. So there might be a few of us there. Yeah, that's the at this point. That's the next con I have on my schedule. I don't know if there will be another one, uh, yeah. or if Gen, if Gen Con's back up, you know, we'll probably be at Gen Con in twenty twenty three or twenty twenty two. I think. Um, but it's hard to say. Yeah, yeah, well, with variants and all that kind of stuff. Did Did you participate in the Gen Con online for this year? Or no. Uh we we facilitated some folks who are running games. Um, but me, myself, I did not, that was actually, I was, was I out of town? There was literally, oh, uh, there was a wedding. Oh, okay. <laughs> One of my, my brother got married, so we were out of town. So I wasn't there. Anyway. Sure. Uh, but yeah, we facilitated some folks who ran some games and we had, you know, copies of things for sale through the vendor marketplace and stuff. So. Okay, cool, cool. All right. Uh, maybe we should talk about, uh, yeah. Uh, Heirs of Heresy a little bit. Let's roll into Heirs to Heresy. Um, so were you approached by Osprey? Did, had, had you designed the game prior and were trying to sell sure. it? How did that all come about? No. So I saw Osprey was getting into RPGs. And I love Osprey, uh, their historical line of work. I have most of their little blue Osprey books. I love them. They're great references for things. And I, I've always lamented that there's not more historical RPGs. Um, because that's a genre I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's hard as a small business owner to say, I want to make, there, there's a balance of, I want to make something I like versus I want to make something that'll let me eat this month. Right. Right. right? And it, and it's hard, you know, and so I always felt really uncomfortable saying, I'm going to do a historical thing as like a big release with a lot of money behind it. And, um, and so I, this is literally how it went. I saw their stuff and I just tweeted at them saying, Hey, Osprey, <laughs> If you want some historically themed RPG pitches, hit me up. Um, and then I just like, you know, whatever. And then the next day I woke up and there was a, a Twitter DM from Osprey <laughs> saying, hey, email us here. Um, and I emailed cool. and I talked with one of their, uh, I don't know. I talked with one of the folks from Osprey. He's their uh, acquiring editor for the game line. I don't know what his exact title or position is anymore. Um, but apparently he already knew some of my work from Gallant Night Games. Um, and so he was like, I, you know, I have your stuff on our shelf. It's what I use when I pitched, uh, when I pitched the game line to Osprey, this, your stuff was one of the examples I brought in and said, look how, how they're doing it. We should do it kind of like this nice. in terms of like form factor and presentation. And, and I was like, Oh, that's great. He's like, I'm a big fan and uh, hit me with your pitches. So I sent him, you know, four or five pitches. Um, and, uh, I'm a big Templar Knight Templar buff and he was as well. And he was like, that's the one that's right there. That's the game I want to see made. And I was like, I'm happy to make it. If you'd like to pay me for it, <laughs> we'll pay you for it. And you can make it and I'm like done deal. Um, so I had not written it. I had thought about it. 
I maybe noodled on it, and I wouldn't say I wrote any more than a page of notes prior to the pitch I sent. You know, um, but yeah, and so I just I literally just tweeted at them and said, "Yo, I have ideas," and they were like, "Hey, let's do it." So that was uh, that was kind of nice. <laughs> That's cool, and, and validation, right? I mean, they had the book, your books on the shelf, right? So it wasn't. I I had not expected new. that, so that was nice yeah. to. It was nice to hear they had some. One of the things you always worry about as a creative, um, and it, it's a balance for me because at Gallon I can do whatever I want technically because I'm the boss and I'm the right. lead creative. I control. I to a degree I control everything we put out. My wife actually has final say on everything, but I'm not going <laughs> to let her know that. Um. So if I write something, the buck kind of stops with me, or we call it right like. Um, and so I, I have both this creative freedom, to just do whatever I want, but I'm also, uh, financially on the hook for making sure I contribute to the family income, right? I've got to make sure Gallon does well enough that it can afford to pay me my salary. Um, so there's this weird balance of total freedom slash you're always on the hook. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you pivot to do something for somebody else, that changes because you don't have total freedom, but you're also not as much on the hook, right? Like, so that was kind of great in some ways. Cause I was they, like, we like the pitch. I wrote it and they gave me a lot of freedom. Like they weren't saying like, Oh, change all this, put all this stuff in there. They, I, I think the book as printed was pretty much what I submitted minus, minus you know, edits or add a correction, right? Sure. Basic stuff like that. But they didn't come in and say change mechanics or, you know, it was stuff like, oh, flush out this section, or we'd like to rearrange the book in this way, or whatever, right? Right, right. Um, you know, we think this sentence is poorly worded. Can you reword it? Stuff like that. Um, there are a few mechanical things we changed based on their feedback. But for the most part, they kind of just let me go nuts with it. Um, and that, that I don't have to deal with, like, logistics. I don't have to deal with art direction. I gave them art notes. You know, I approved all the pieces of art that came in or not even approve so much as like just said, Hey, that looks great. You're doing a great job. Go team. <laughs> right. You guys uh, are killing it. I wouldn't pretend like I actually had any real say other than I love it. Yeah. But they yeah. like, I, they, the artists, the ones I picked, they let me pick the artists, you know, and, and they worked it out with those artists and it was a great experience and it was totally different from the way I normally get to produce a role-playing game, which is really nice. That's cool. How long did it take you to put everything together from, you know, from pitch to final, final copies. No, we were on a truncated timeline because of COVID. Hmm. They wanted it to be released in October of this year, which meant it needed to be delivered by October of last year. Because oh. it takes about a year to edit, lay out art, and then print and ship, right? Sure. Um, and so I, I think I wrote, play tested it, and got it all sorted to them in about six months. Wow. <laughs> On top of my normal. At that time, I was still doing Gallant and still doing my day job. So That's nuts. Is, is, uh, is that the, the quickest you've ever put out a, a setting or a book like that? Nope. No. <laughs> no. Um, you mean in terms of just me writing it? You, yeah. Because yeah, we, yeah, there was a yeah. year of other stuff, right? Yeah. No, we, you know, some of our Kickstarters, because we work on them in advance or whatever, we turn them around in six months or so. Right, right, right. Um, but it's definitely stressful. This was a lot less stressful. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, I kind of just handed off the document and they'd email me, hey, here's the edits. What do you think? I'm like, oh, I like this edit. I don't like this one. I disagree or whatever, right? And that was it. That was, you know, 20 minutes of my day done, right? Right, right. Sometimes a couple hours if I had to reread a bunch of stuff. But it was, once I handed it off, it was kind of just in their hands and I was able to walk away. Other than whenever they needed me, they'd let me know and I'd, you know, do the thing. But yeah, it was, it, the writing itself wasn't so hard as much as getting all the play testing because I, I pushed a lot of little envelopes mechanically, I feel like, and we put the game through a lot of play testing mm -hmm. um, to make sure it hung together the way I wanted it to. And that took more time because we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm trying to organize these play tests for a game and I've created a initiative system that is less easy to use online. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, than that. And so that was interesting. So, you know, I, uh, there, that was the, I would say the playtesting was actually the hardest part of the development process more than anything else. Right. And do you have like a go-to group? I mean, do you have like your regular group. Do you start with them first? Yeah, I've got, a I've got my personal playtest group who we play with and they play test most of my games. Um, the, some of the gallon stuff, like the tiny D six line of games, we, those need less playtesting because I've written so much of them, written so many different iterations or whatever between the monthly content and the big books that, you know, I've got a pretty good grasp on that. Sure, sure. But with new stuff, you know, we definitely, yep, we go to that playtest group. And this time I kept it to them. Normally I have some other playtest groups um, I roll out to with Gallant stuff because Gallant compensates them for their playtests. But yeah. uh, this one was just my local group. And so, yeah. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We do have a question from Twitter as well. Will Phillips uh, asked, he's interested in uh, the high-level design decision on how much history versus how much fantasy to focus on, and uh, if that was something that was dry, uh, if that was something that you were driving, or if that was uh, more of an interest of the publisher. That was definitely I, I was able to set the scope for the book entirely in terms of content. Um, and they were really great about letting me have that kind of say. So I, when I, I, when I came in, I always wanted the game to be a toolbox. I didn't want, I wanted something that was a collection of mechanical tools that you could use to craft your ideal Knights Templar conspiracy campaign. Right. And so I knew I had to have everything from the straight historical sort of gameplay where the Templar treasure is gold and you know, you're taken off with that or all the way up to that, that Da Vinci code, angels and demons, right? The Templar treasure is the Holy grail. And now you're trying to secret it away from France. Right. Right. So the mechanically, the game always had to support that wide range and that gamut. Um, in terms of the writing, I was, I, I kind of set the tone of that. I set the pace. Um, it was, a. it was, I, I frankly, I probably wrote less about the history, the historical elements than the fantasy, mostly because you can wiki the historical stuff, right? Sure. I can I can say go Google history of the Knights Templar and the Polonius Templar, right? Or go read this book or whatever. I can't tell you to go Google how the eleven circles of the secret papers of King Solomon unlock Gnostic magic <laughs> because that's totally made up right in the book, right? Like so by by necessity, I think the history side gets a little bit of a short, I won't say a short shrift, but uh, 
there's definitely less of it or less of a focus on it because it's easier to support outside of the game. Um, and that was that was my decision the whole way through. Um, and, but, you know, but even with it, there's still a nice chunk. I think about 10, 12 pages right in the front of the book yeah. that, you know, pretty much lays out the history in, you know, very broad strokes. Yeah, I wanted, I really wanted to give enough of a, enough of a historical background that you could hand it to a player who knew nothing and they could read it and at least have an idea of what they were looking at. Right. Mm -hmm. They were, so they wouldn't be totally lost. Um, but I, you know, I mean, I, I think I threw a timeline of the crusades. I literally like first crusade, second crusade. Yeah. And I was like, I could put all the stuff that happens, but I only have so many pages. (laughs) I have to not do that at some point. And each Um, one of those entries is like a a book, you know, book you write more than one book about most of those entries yeah yeah um so there was this you know and then one of those things is always you look back and you go oh i i pulled back too far i didn't include enough here or i overshot it here right and so anytime you're dealing with that that's definitely something i think is going to happen as a author and a creative and as a publisher even you know you look and you go eh, i would i would wouldn't do it this way or i would say let's just do an extra page here right right um but you know you do the best you can and you try to do what feels appropriate or best or right. Um, so, yeah. So, no, Osprey was really great. They kind of let me set the tone and the pace for all that. And that's, so, and frankly, if there's something wrong in there or you don't like it or it's bad, that's on me. And if anything you like, it's probably the byproduct of Osprey. So, <laughs> we'll just go with that. That's a safe. That's a safe bet usually. Right. And and on the flip side, you you know, there's a section in the back too that you know kind of outlines some of the you know various conspiracies or you know sort of gives you a through line for a particular type of conspiracy. Right? So it sort of like offsets that historiosity um, that I really like. And you know, and it is modular, right? So if you don't want to use magic, if you don't want to use the esoterica, if you don't want to use you know gifts like the Grail or you know this, you know Spear of Longinus, I guess if you want to throw that in, there's not in the book. Right you know, easy enough to add, you know, you can mix and match all of those pieces to really craft the kind yeah. of game that your players want. And I really like that modularity. Yeah, that was, that was really, honestly, that was the biggest push for me was I needed to have all these discrete elements that you can pull out or plug in to make the game you want. Right. Like, because everybody's going to want something different. And to me, you know, that's where all the replayability is. All right, we played through it with a lot of magic and there's dragons and demons. Let's do it as like a historical epic, right? Like the kingdom of heaven, right? Yeah. That kind of gladiator Ridley Scott historical epic vibe. Um, and so you can do that, right? And so you kind of tell the same story every time, but the way you tell the story and the obstacles and problems and the part of the game you have to use is going to change every time you tell the story, mm-hmm. which I think is really exciting because it rewards you because you get comfortable with the mechanics, but then you get to deploy them in new ways. And that's a lot of fun, right? It's, it's really exciting to watch a player go, okay, I know these rules really well. We're on our second campaign. Ooh, we're gonna add this new rule. Ooh, here's a clever way to use it. You know, and watch those wheels and that engagement really start to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the length of campaigns too, even there's modularity for that, where you can run a short campaign, a medium campaign, you can mix and match the elements. So maybe your short campaign, you're trying to get to England and we go right. heavy magic and there's dragons, and, you know, yeah. St. George and all that. And then, you know, maybe you do the, the longer historical campaign yeah. and hell you're trying to get to Portugal. And, you know, there's, yeah. 
journey rules and you know foraging and like you know it's like D, right all the you know the 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 travel that takes six months is like four die rolls but the you know to jump a pit takes four hours or whatever right, right. But, but there is uh, mechanical stuff where you can you know and i like it almost has like a heat mechanic um you know so if they're in the wilderness you know you roll a d6 and you know four oh, or five the, the, the pursuits of yeah, yeah i really yeah. like that yeah i was I really liked how those came out. I was really proud of them. They, I felt like they really captured the feeling. And one of the things, you know, as a GM, I've been GMing for I, over 20 years, 20 years now. So a lot of this stuff I don't think about. I just do what I do, right? And so the over the last year to two years, I've had a really conscience bent in my uh, game writing and game design to say I need to do better at communicating how the game is supposed to be ran, both via mechanics as well as just telling you, like, the goal of this rule is to give the GM tools to modulate pursuit. Like, mm-hmm. so he's not just – the GMs, they're not just winging it. They're not just saying – now the Inquisitor show up, right? Nah, that's not what we're doing, right? Like, by, by codifying it and putting mechanical frameworks around it, it helps a new GM leverage the rules in a way that is, I'm going to say, safe in terms of game balance, right? They're not they're not as... It's the, it's the whole challenge rating argument. Challenge rating is great because what it does is it gives the GM a safety net if they're worried or inexperienced, they might kill their party. But if the GM isn't worried about that or the GM is really experienced... They know that challenge rating is not really a thing you need. You just, if the monster is dying too fast, just give it some extra hit points. Yeah, yeah. If it's not hurting the players enough, just give it a bigger damage die, right? right. Those are all those little GM tricks we learn. Um, and so, yeah, I could split run the game and go, oh, now the Inquisitor show up because I've, I've learned how to structure games with narrative tempo. But what I need to do is help people who are running the game because I can't come teach them how to run the game. So I need to make sure the rules teach them on how I see the game being ran so they know what the framework is and then they can change it for their U table and make it unique. Yep. And and it keeps the and it keeps the tension up. It's thematically so appropriate. You know, as they're fleeing from France and they're trying to get to some other safe location, but you know roll D six and like fifty percent of that time it's not gonna Great. be safe, right? Like that's fuck, you know? Yeah. That's <laughs> the stressful. The ten yeah, I was trying to model a level of tension based on where we stopped for the night, right? And one of the things I did is I tied your how you spend your advancement points to where you stop. Right? Like when you rest away from civilization, you're at way less risk of getting ambushed or caught or being noticed, right? You can hide better. You have a higher chance of removing these pursuit points. Um, but there's certain actions you can't do. You can't repair your gear. You can't level up. You can't, right. you know, pray at a church because that's not a thing. And so you do have to go to town if you want to do some of the things you need to do to make it out. Right. And then in town, you have to risk these pursuit points. So I was really, I really happy with how that came out. I think it does helps the GM structure the narrative really well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I I really like that. Um, And we we talked about toolkit again, super, super useful. And and even, you know, we were talking, you know, pregame as I was going through it, I'm like, Oh, I love this mob mechanic. I can use this in this other thing. I really like, Oh, you know, if you roll a one on one of your damage dice, you know, it, it you know, there, it reduces the damage reduction of, of your foe. So like, you know, you can really, a straight D&D game, like, right. You just rip that out, add it through and like, I'm Oh, very, very proud of that mechanic. I really I, I love that. Nothing, 
any because nothing feels worse than getting a hit and doing low damage, right? And so instead, I took the damage die and I said, okay, if you roll a one or and like some of it's like one or two, whatever, right? If you roll a certain number or less, you don't do a lot of damage, but you get some sort of kicker effect. You get a bonus, right? And I tried to tie it to the weapon. So like on the dagger, it just ignores reduction because it slides through a crack in their armor, right? It slides through a, a hole in their chain mail. The mace, you know, lets you uh, reduce their reduction because you shatter their shield or you dent their chain mail, um, Things like you know the the uh, the axe just lets you shatter shatter something they're carrying or wearing, things like that. Um, and and that let me play with the damage die. So like the mace is really. I had a player who was like, "Oh, the mace stinks. It only does two d four damage." And then they realized that anytime a one comes up, they get to do the reduction, and they're like, "Oh, that's really cool." <laughs> they're like, "That's good. I like." They, they, it kind of clicked for them. Like, oh. Yeah, it doesn't do a lot of damage, but it's going to consistently just destroy armor, destroy mm -hmm. gear, right? And it's and, permanent. The reduction's permanent until, you know, if, if that, you know, fearsome forward to get away and repair armor and come back. Right. Like, in, in a real sense, like, it's forever. Right? Yeah. It's just like combat. Right? Yeah. And so it watching that kind of click as the mechanics happened was really exciting for me because I when I first presented the game and I told the players how we were how the mechanics work. Uh, so for those of you watching, you know, be, right now or later, um, the basic mechanic in Heirs to Heresy is a 2d10 roll plus your stat plus your skill versus target number, right? So you roll 2d10, you combine them. So if I roll a 5 and a 6, I have an 11. I add my stat, which is 3. I add my skill, which is 3. So I have a 17. And if 17 is equal to or higher than the target number, I did it, right? Mechanic uh, damage is done in uh, dice sizes, so like d4, d6, d8, d10. Um... And so the idea is that as you are doing things, the dice you are rolling are going to impact what happens, right? Um, and so I roll these d10s, I do the thing. I hit the guy, great, I hit him, now I have to roll damage. And damage is reduction. Okay, well, uh, well you know, my I rolled uh, a five, your armor is seven, I didn't get through, right? Or, but now with the mace, I rolled a five, your armor is seven, I didn't get through, but now your armor is six for the rest of the fight. Mm -hmm. Right, and it it creates this tactical element where even if you don't think you can damage anything at all, swinging that weapon could still be useful, you know. And then I tried to when I presented that to the players, they were like, you know, the immediate response was, "Oh, it's just D and D. You just swapped out the D tens for the D twenty." And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> I feel like that's inaccurate. Let's yeah, play the game yeah. and see." And about the second session, the the player who had said that to me was like, "Yeah, I was wrong." <laughs> He's like the tactical choices are simple but really interesting, and there's enough of them that I don't feel overwhelmed, but enough that I don't feel like it's too simple, right? There's this balance, um, and I was that, that was the thing I was most nervous about because the combat system is where I kind of take the biggest swath of uh, changes to, I, we'll call it conventional RPG wisdom, maybe, um, in a lot of ways because you know when you're fighting mobs, they don't get to act unless you fail your role. Because a mob of peasants with pitchforks is not going to engage a fully armored, fully trained Knight Templar, arguably the greatest warrior in the world at that time, right? Yeah. In Europe. They're best trained, best equipped. Like, a Knight Templar is a verifiable badass, right? Um, and so, no random peasants can be like, you know what I should do? I should just go after this guy in chainmail with a great sword <laughs> with my pitchfork, right? And so, what happens is, mobs only act when you fail. So if you attack a mob and you miss, then they're like, oh, there's an opening, and they surge in an attack. 
right? But if you just keep hitting them, you can just mow through the mob and move on because you're a Templar and they're a mob, and that's how this works now, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, and then when you fight fearsome foes, which are fo- foes on your level or higher, generally speaking, now you have to worry about trading blows, and there's an action economy you have to manage and work through. And I think it really, I think it's, on the surface, it appears to be very similar to a lot of other games in some places and pretty different in some places. And I think it can be jarring on first read, but every time somebody's played it through, they've always like, oh, this really seems or like this, this combat system feels engaging. It feels full of options and choices without feeling overwhelming. That's, that's, that's what I want. Right. And that's what I wanted in the game. I wanted something that felt like I was a warrior making a choice when I pull out my weapon and swing my weapon. But I also didn't want to be like, all right, so the, the, uh, the Saix dagger does five damage. The hunting dagger does six damage, but it only has <laughs> one armor. I don't want that. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to find this balance and I really, you can tell that I'm really proud of it because I keep talking about it, but I'm really proud of the fact I that love it. Yeah, it's where great. we landed there. I, I think that is one of the most engaging combat systems I was able to kind of design around the existing kind of core conventional RPG framework ideas. Yeah, no, I, 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 I love it. Like I said, when I listen, when I listen to that fanable game, I'm like, Oh, this is like, this is really cool. I like this. Right. And you get to, you know, it's not a D 20, you roll more dice, you got two D 10, right. So it's a little different. It's a little bit more interesting. It's not a dice, you know, it's not, you know, world of darkness where you're, you know, 30 D 10 and keep tens or whatever, you know, but, but it is a little different, you know, to me, a little bit more engaging and, and it, but it did remind me a little bit of like, you know, world of darkness and like, you know, you know, give me a wits plus computer. Right? so you're taking a, and a, and a you know, your, your stat and a skill, you know, you're adding all the stuff together plus your, you know, bonuses and stuff. So like you did, it, it sort of hit that note for me a little bit. Yeah. Um, just like sort of tangentially like, Oh, this sounds like something I already know. Right, um, but yeah, really cool. I love I love the mom mechanic too. It's just it's so and and it's not even that they're not acting right, like thematically in my head. It's like they are acting, but they're so inept, right? Like they right. kind of jab with a thing, but like you're they're, an armor and you've got a shield. Yeah, right? it's more like a bunch of farmers waving pointed sticks at you, and you're like, I'm yeah. wearing armor, and so you can just walk past them, or that you know they they kind of they kind of yell at you and you threaten them and they back up, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's this the idea that they don't want to really mess with you. They're just there to be an obstacle, right? Yeah, and and they can do a lot of damage. I mean, you oh, yeah. you, you present that opening, and boy, they you pack one hell of a lump. <laughs> yeah, I, I one of my first players, they had a couple of combats, and they're like, oh, it's just a mob, and he failed two rolls in a row, and the mob just rolled him, and he was like, oh, that was not pleasant. <laughs> Because I was describing like this mob just swarming him and like burying him down and just beating him and they could because they could put the hurt on and he was like I don't like this I don't want to do this yeah, yeah. you know and his his friends had to come pull him out um, but like you know there, it it's interesting because that was an unintended side effect you know he was so competent in battle because he's a Templar that he got cocky in game and then paid the price right and I was like oh. I have accidentally, completely unintentionally modeled this thing that happens, right? And I just watched it happen at my table. Mm-hmm. And it was a little like, oh, hey, maybe I didn't do a good job kind of moment, right? There's those things where you're like, I don't know if this is working. Then that happens. You're like, oh, it is working. Okay. Right? And so for me, that was, it's just, I haven't had as much fun playtesting the game as I had playtesting this game in a long right. time. 
And you want to talk a little bit about the um, the, the the foes that you you face. There's yeah. no there's no stats, right? So it's two d ten plus the number of Templars in in the scene is going to determine what the what the roles are. I'm, this this is your yeah. Generally, generally speaking, that is uh, how it plays out. Um, so there's there's two ways it works. Um, there are there's opposed roles. So foes don't have stats. What I've done is I've tried to say, look, this is a story about mythic heroes trying to accomplish a mythic task. Even if we're doing the gritty historical epic, it's still relatively mythic, right? And so the opposition is always as hard as the Templars needed to be, kind of, right? It's like the, the idea that um, you are your Templars, your chosen warriors of the Catholic Church and God. And so the opposition against you is the world arrayed against, you know, kind of God's chosen. Um, and so the basic idea is that when you roll as the GM to do something to oppose a Templar, uh, it is 2d10 plus a number equal to the number of Templars in the scene. And that's it. That's the general, like, roll to make it happen. Um, and in combat, it's a little different. Um, enemies have some combat stats to make combat a little more intuitive and easier for the same reason. Right. Like we want, we don't, I don't want to be like, Oh, this mob is always better or worse or whatever. I wanted specific uh, action. So and enemies have an attack and damage bonus, but otherwise they are generally just as competent as there are Templars in the scene. And that's that. Yeah. I wanted something that was easy. If you're the GM, because so, as a GM, a lot of games, I end up hung up on, like, little details. And I'm like, this is not relevant, right? Um, and I always, I long for these. Like, one thing I love is the cipher system has, uh, how hard is something on a scale of 1 to 10, right? And and that that's so great. And then they go, multiply it by 3, and then you need to roll over that. And I'm always like, why can't we just do it with a D10 and have a one to 10, right? Like that's that as a GM, that's so easy. I can ask my, I can just, like, how hard is this on a scale of one to 10? It's a great GM question. Right. Um, and the cyber system does such a good job with it because they go, this is a six, this is a six, Right. And so you, you instinctively kind of have these built in benchmarks on how hard something is. And I love that. Um, about the cipher system, you know, and I wanted something almost equivalently easy. How competent are the enemies? Well, they're as competent as the Templars are because there are three Templars here. Right? So they have a plus three, one Templar, they have a plus one, right? It's easy as the GM. You don't have to stop and go, okay, he's flanking. He gets a plus two, right? You know, uh, this, this cleric over here is buffing. So they get an additional plus two. There's none of that going on here. Right. I've tried to say, as the G, I want to reduce the friction points where the GM is making decisions, so the GM can just focus on the narrative. And so, I, I when I was writing the game, I tried to pinpoint these spots where I was like, "This is where I feel hung up. How do I fix that?" And then I would try to fix it. And you know, and some of these fixes aren't ones I would do anymore because as we play tested or we worked on the game, they move, they iterate, they grow past that. You know, um, but I really like where we ended up on this. Yeah, no, it, it, it's fantastic. I um, you just mentioned questions in passing. Um, I really like the questions at the front of the book 
um, as you get started was you're creating your character. You know, when did you join the order? Who are you friendly with? And then, you know, another section with relationships, because I feel like, you know, you never know if this is going to be the first game that somebody plays. And, you know, if they come in and they don't really have a sense of like, well, how does this work? And, you know, what's a PC? Like, what does this mean? You know, it, it allows them to sort of focus in and drill down a little bit on like, Oh, this is what this means. It, you know, it helps to create relationships within the group. I really like that. And not all books do that. And I really appreciate the fact that you have something like that in there. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. That definitely goes back to that kind of like, I wanted to make sure we put the framework in place for the people who needed it because not everybody needs every framework in a game, but it can be easy to, uh, forget that or jettison that or assume we need only need right so i was trying to say i I definitely tried to present the book as here's all the stuff and then when you don't need it feel free to just start throwing it out wholesale or add new stuff in make whatever changes you want and and i think even for experienced players right because not to necessarily get jaded because i look forward to every game that i'm in every new system even you know old system you know we played a hundred times and sometimes maybe you lose sight of you get like a high concept like oh i'm gonna do this thing and like you know you just got to party of murder hobos with no sort of relational basis so like even just you know bearing that in mind then to, to maybe sit down and ask some of these questions at the start of you know any game in a in a session zero uh, I, I really like that i think we're probably going to start doing that well cool i'm glad it works i uh that was kind of a last minute ad if i'm being honest hmm. i i I was looking, I felt like the character section wasn't quite where I needed it to be. And I was trying to go over and I was like, I need to help people because part of the problem is you're all Templar. There's no wizards. There's no thieves. There's no, you're, you're a Templar. Here we are. Right. Mm -hmm. So what is that look like outside of this? Um, So, uh, you know, part of that was, I was like, I need to help people understand how they make, Templar who is different from the Templar next to them at the table, right? And so that's kind of where those, where are you from? How did you get here? Questions come in. And then I was like, I also need to make sure that when you start, because every campaign starts with the Templar order falling under assault from France. That's the first adventure in the book. And where it goes from there is up to you. Um, I was like, but I need to make sure that these are people you want to have by your side as you're fleeing, right? This is it, There is some strength to the whole, we're shoved together, we don't know each other. There's also a lot of strength of this is my buddy. We've been to war to hell and back. I'm making sure I'm making sure Jean-Pierre gets out the door, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he went down. I'm going back, right? Because that's what you want in sort of this military historical fantasy genre. You want those awesome band of brothers style moments for these characters. Um, and so, you know, I it all kind of at the end, I was looking at it and I was like, this is lacking. What? Do, how do I fix this thing? And those were the solutions I came up with. Nice. And do you want to talk about character creation a little bit? Yeah. So the way character creation works is you focus on, um, I, I call them pick lists and bundles. So the idea is you will decide what kind of night you are at two different points. So um, at the start, you have to decide if you are a focused or a well-rounded knight. Um, and I might have, I've changed the terms a couple times during, um, during the writing process. So if I get them wrong, I apologize. Um, but what that does is if you are a focused knight, you get a specific stat array where your stats can be higher, but your lower stats are lower. 
And if you're a well-rounded knight, they aren't quite as high, but you have a bonus in everything, right? And so you make that decision. And then you look at your skill packages and you have to choose if you are, uh, I, I now I forget what I call them. Yeah, I think I have it marked in here. I, I, I don't even know where my copy of the book is at the moment, actually. Uh, dedicated, let's see, no. There it is, um, versatile and dedicated. And then focus, yeah, focus and well rounding is the skill points. The focus, okay, dedicated, dedicated versatile. Yeah, sorry. So, people watching, sorry, I turned the game in over a year ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so if you are a dedicated knight, you have higher attributes, but you also have lower attributes. If you are, uh, we said it was called what now, versatile, versatile knight, versatile. you have less high attributes, but all your attributes have a bonus. And so, you make that decision. And then you go to your skills and you make the decision of, am I a focused knight or am I a, am I a well-rounded knight? Well -rounded. And the difference is a well-rounded knight gets more skill points to spend, but they can't go as high. Whereas a focused knight has less skill points, but they can take their skills higher. You know, And so by picking one of these two bundles, you create a pretty good spread of character interactions. Then inside the skill point bundle, you spend your skill points on skills. So then you have your own customization. But it all plays really quick, which was a goal for me. I really wanted it to be something where, especially once you've done it, you can sit down and make a character in 10 minutes and be done. Super easy. Right. I was just a little disappointed that there wasn't a point buy because that's like my preferred anymore is to, to be able to... You know, so oh, there actually is a point by all the math in there is a point by. Oh, okay. I okay. just hit it behind these yeah. bundles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So if you can figure it out, there's a point by there. But I'm not going <laughs> to. All right, I'm going to have to go back to the book then. <laughs> I um, think the attribute point by is pretty obvious. I think it's literally just hey, there's 15 points of attributes, and I've forced you to spread them in this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't I think, look that close. I at think it. if you add them all up, they come out to the same number. The skills are a little different because you get different amounts of skill points. But, sure, 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 sure. But yeah, there is technically a point buy, and that's how I created these bundles. But then I was I wanted to reduce. There's a balance to options, and it's a difference between um, complication and complexity. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever read or studied Dieter Rams, Dieter Rams is an industrial designer from Germany, uh, famous for. If you are, if you have ever seen the classic, uh, kind of almost not Art Deco, but the minimalist like Braun razor design stuff like that, uh, the Braun radios, all that really minimalist drip down. That's Dieter Rams, kind of, that, okay. and he was a big influence on the first iPod. So that kind of that minimalist, straightforward. The thing does what it does. Um, I'm a big fan of that. And one of the things he talks about is less but better, and complexity, not complication. Complication is bad. Complication is friction. Complexity is interesting choices and options inside a controlled framework, right? Um, and less but better means we take out the stuff we don't need and we make the stuff we do need do it better. And so this bundle and then point by spread was designed to accomplish that. There's less choices, but the choices you make are better because they are more complex, but they're not complicated. Right. right. And so that was my goal working through that uh, with that bundle. So while there is a point by and you could do an advanced character creation where your character can do whatever you want. Um, this, this this specific setup was designed to give you enough choices to be interested in your character, enough control to make the character you want to make while not slowing down character creation to the point where it hampers your ability to play or participate in the game. Right. And you don't want to be two hours trying to make a character. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's not, you know, it's not fun for you. I mean, it might be fun for you, but it's definitely not fun for everybody else who wants to play the game and they're waiting for yeah. you. Right. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. 
And then we, you can increase skills and attributes uh, yep. by acquiring uh, advancement points, and you uh, acquire advancement points by uh, rolling criticals on, on your rolls. Yep. Uh, there's a, yeah, that's one of the ways. You actually can also acquire them by helping other characters with their mm -hmm. tests. Um, and so the, and, but you're capped on how many you can get per session by your faith. So, faith or intellect, right? Uh, faith or intellect, yep. yep. So, uh, and I believe it's whichever is higher. Um, so if you are an exceptionally faithful knight, you can get more advancement points. If you're an exceptionally intelligent knight, you can get more advancement points. Um, and you get them by criticals, or you get them by providing aid to another Templar in a scene. And that's and if they're successful, everybody who helped them gets an advancement point, um, which is actually the easiest way, and it puts it fully in the player's control. You can get as many advancement points up to your limit as you want per session. Right, right, right. And the, uh, the, the criticals are uh, same number on a successful die roll on 2d10. Yep, say it doubles on the two d ten is a critical. Yep. yep, and and you know while you were playtesting, did it did that ha seem like it happened often enough that you know so a, a character with a faith of you know like say three or four would probably be pretty high. Um, mm -hmm. Is that a, a pretty routine action? Um, does it seem to come up often? I mean, I guess so, right? Like yeah. it's, it's the mechanics for the book, right? I just, I wondered like, wow, it seems like it would be hard to, to well to acquire that many points, right? It. It can be, but that's one reason we have the teamwork. The helping, tool, yep. Right, is because I'm a I'm a big believer in putting a lot control of things in the player's hands, up up to a point. Um, and one of the things I think players should control that they don't in most RPGs is their advancement. I think it's I think the idea that the GM controls advancement is a bit contrived and silly, um, especially for where games are. And so I'm a big I'm a big fan of. You know, the old uh, Chaosium BRP system does that, where if you critical, you get a check, right? Yeah. But yeah. you don't control your advancement because you have to critical, and then you have to roll over your thing to advance it, right? Mm -hmm. So the dice control your advancement. And I wanted something that was, like, had that feel, but uh, was not dependent on the dice. It was dependent on the player making it a decision. Um, and I wanted to reward the players who acted like a unit of well-trained knights, right? Like, these are people who should work together and should work together well. This right. is what they should be good at. And so uh, I really wanted to reward that. And that was the perfect place to slot in that player level control advancement points. And the helping is super powerful because you get up to three characters to help a knight with an action. And you could, there's like three or four different uh, options that you can take. You, you get a reroll, uh, you know, a bonus, you, you know, use your skill. Benefit. Role. So yeah, yep. it's it's super powerful for a unit, uh, you know, cohesive units of, of knights to work together, just like crush <laughs> whatever whatever the skill task is, you know. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah, deliberate. I, yeah, I like that, and it makes sense. Right. Yeah, it's I one of the things I learned several years ago that I've been working to apply better and better uh, and more fluidly over the years as I've designed more games is the idea that every mechanic in the game should push the intended feel and narrative forward, right? So the teamwork rules are a good example of that. When you do the teamwork rules, you feel like a group of military badasses doing a thing together, right? Mm -hmm. And that's deliberate. That's what I want them to feel like. That's why the teamwork rules are the way they are, right? Uh, when you, when combat happens and those hits are bouncing off your armor and you're chewing through a mob, that's deliberate. Again, right? I am attempting to evoke a very specific feel. And so then I... And so I would try to make sure I didn't add any rules in that did not land on that field. They didn't land on that space because that's the space I want the game to exist in for the players. Right. 
and it still can be super dangerous. Like even with all of that, you know, you fail a roll or two rolls against a mob, and they you know roll over you and bowl you under, and somebody's got to come pull you out, right? Like there's still a lot of push and pull. Uh, and, and tension within even like we're super badasses right because, because it's it's the randomness of of not only just a die roll but like the simulation of like in combat like fuck you fall down and you get swarmed right like right. stuff happens <laughs> right you know and so there's there's a i, I definitely don't want to end up on the players have final say control everything element because i do want that risk of that classic you know 70s 80s rpg feel of we could die with a bad roll mm-hmm. I, I think to a degree that's important in this kind of game because we're doing a game in a historical setting where life is kind of cheap at times, right? We've, we've yeah. had several wars over a hundred years. Life has been treated very cheaply. And so the mechanics also need to reinforce that while reinforcing this mythic hero take. Um, and so I worked really hard to try to find a really good balance between that. And I, I'm really happy where the game landed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I also point out that, um, you know, the knights have, uh, you know, faith skill, they have faith points, and they can use those faith points to, you know, re-roll and do certain things, you know, kind of functions like moxie or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, f- fate points in like a rogue trader game or something like that, yep. which is also good, right? It's, you know, you're you're imbued with the faith of your, you know, your, your, your spirit and religion, yep. whatever. So like, you know, you dig, you're able to dig deep and like, you know, uh, try to bowl that guy over or whatever. Like I like having the option to be able to right. like, you know, because some people like their dice are just terrible or like maybe it's just that, you know, it's that night and like, you just can't do anything. Like a oh, fuck. Right. I spend a faith point. And I reroll, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. Well, and that was deliberate for me because I have friends who have that problem. The dice hate them. Right. And I have friends who the dice love and it can be unfun sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. so I wanted to make sure that the players have enough tools to kind of dial the game to their level of fun within reason. So that was a big push. Yep. And uh, the mass battle rules, they look interesting. Does it does it feel sort of board gamey when you drop down into that level? It, yeah, it feels like a really stripped out board game or war game, mm-hmm. which is deliberate. That's what I wanted. I wanted that zoomed out tactical feel of pushing units across the map. Right. So, yeah, yeah that's I what like it, that. Yeah. It has an interesting mechanic with the with the army points and you know how those flux mm-hmm. based on you know positional relationships, you know, right. advantage, disadvantage, you know, size of opposing forces and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I, I'm really happy with those. How long does it typically take to play out uh, a mass battle like that in, in what you've play tested? Um the first time we did it, it was pretty much the whole session. Hmm. Um with some setup and takedown and pieces. Uh but once we had done it a couple of times during one of our campaigns, I ran three campaigns during playtesting. Um, we, we, we knocked out a mass battle. I want to say in 15 to 20 minutes, once or twice. Wow. Nice. Okay. Because the mechanics are pretty straightforward once you know them. So we quickly kind of, we just moved to the side, threw out some note cards, wrote down what unit was and there. And we used uh, poker chips for the army points. So we'd stack poker chips on the note card, mm. right? Like six army points, six poker chips, right? Yep. Yep. Red are our guys, green are their guys or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we were able to kind of knock that out super fast. So that was nice. Um, and they so if you if you've done them a few times, they play pretty quick, which is great. Cool. Yeah, I definitely want to check that out because that 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 looks like an interesting an interesting subset, you know, sub game, right. you know, within the system. I I, I like that. Yeah, I, I was really proud of that one and how it ended up. And and you mentioned earlier that you um, 
got to pick the artists or suggest the artists for yeah. the game. I will let you say their names. I am not going to hazard to guess. The mm -hmm. art is beautiful. I it's, love the it's art. It's gorgeous. And unfortunately, I also <laughs> would struggle to say their names. They are from Eastern Europe, and I admit it's difficult. Um, one of the, the artists who does the chapter splash pages and the cover um, was one that Osprey actually brought to me. Hmm. Who I had seen before and had been on my list. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm right. wanting to work with this artist. And then the other artist uh, who does kind of the more painterly pieces in there did like all the pre-gen characters and all that stuff. Um, she, uh, she was one I brought in and said, I would really love to have her work on this. I love her style. Um, and they were like, yeah, absolutely. And they reached out to her and she was available and they worked it out and it was great. Yeah. I like that. Like painted on fabric. Yeah. Look for all this. It's just such the a cool. Oh, Writing the art descriptions for those was super hard because they asked because we were kind of on this truncated timeline and they're like, we need the art descriptions so we're going to get started. And I'm like, okay, well, the book's not done. I don't know what the chapters are for the <laughs> chapter headers. And so there's a point where I was writing it and I was like, I haven't written this chapter and I commissioned art for it. <laughs> I need to write this chapter that doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. Um, or I changed the structure and I was like, hey, I need to repurpose this piece for a different chapter. Hey, it all works out. But it was definitely there was a few points where I was like, hmm, I might have uh, might have missed the mark on that one here. <laughs> uh, but things you learn, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's all beautiful regardless. I, it's so, so gorgeous. If, if oh. anybody can't tell, I love this book. I love this system. I, I am just like I said, I was blown away when I listened to it. I went out and ordered it right away. I got the PDF and the hard copy. Oh, thank you. Um, it, it's it's fantastic. I people should check this out. It's I, I just I, I love all the little pieces of it. I like the fact you pulled apart and the art, like everything. It's just it's the complete package for me. I just love it. I really appreciate that a lot. Um, I guess we'll, we'll, we we probably start wrapping this up. Is there anything yeah. else that you have coming up? Anything you're working on? Anything you want anybody to know about? Um, you know, so Gallantite Games, my company, um has a Patreon, patreon.com slash Games, where we produce material for our Tiny D6 line. Um, if you check out my blog, alanbar.net, in the next couple of weeks, there might be some extra bonus tidbits for Heirs to Heresy on there. Um, there's some like art, magical artifacts or things that didn't make the cut into uh, the book. So, you know, those things might show up there. Um, we'll see. I will check. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> most of my work comes out through Gallant Night Games. So for future work, you know, the best place to find me is Gallant Night Games, Twitter, Gallant K Games. Um, we're about to release our Gallant vs. Campaign Guide, our campaign guide for our Tiny Supers RPG is coming out in two weeks, uh, stuff like that. So, you know, we, we release a lot of stuff. I, I try to keep busy. Yep. And you have to, right? As, as, yeah. as an indie guy, like if you're not working, you're not earning. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how it works, usually. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. There's a link in the show notes to order uh, Heirs to Heresy, a uh, link to Osprey Games. They also have very cool stuff over there as well. Uh, we want you to, to check that out. Um, I want to thank you for coming on. I, like I said, when, when I ordered the book, I was like, fuck, I got to reach out to Alan because I, I just have to talk to him about this book. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. and I, uh, It was good to come back on. It's been a while, so I was excited to uh, to hear from you. Yeah, yeah, we should we should probably do this more often. I mean, we probably should. <laughs> every time Oscar has something, he's like, "Hey, is it okay if I come on?" I'm like, "Of course!" Like, do his ask. All right, well, I'll, like, I'll start messaging and be like, "Yo, 
I got a book. Well, come on, let me show my book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we're right. here for. <laughs> right. well, I'll start being proactive with you about it. And and I'll I'll try to be a little bit more uh, uh, proactive and listen on on uh, Twitter and the social medias a little bit more and see what you've got going on. It happens. Sweet. All right. <clears throat> Hope everybody enjoyed this as much as I did. Please go out and order the book. Uh, again, there's a Patreon for Alan as well, Alan My Games. Uh, we have coffee for sale. If you are a coffee aficionado, I have coffee on order that hopefully comes today. It's the uh, the legendary brew. It's a nice, easy drinking medium roast. It's it's roasted by our own GM Neil. If you use wow. the uh, the code Legends10, you're going to get 10% off your order. And you can find that at tinyurl.com forward slash legendary brew. Or hit the link in the show notes. We also have a Patreon, but as we just do this for sort of fucking around, throw money at Alan instead because we're going to record for spite. It doesn't really matter. Uh, support your indie creators. But what you could do for us is leave a rating or review on iTunes or whatever your podcatcher of choices. That's super helpful. It bumps us up, bumps us up in the algorithms. Uh, you know, share us with your friends, share us with your coworkers, even your enemies. Because if you hate this tell someone else and then maybe they'll hate it too. I don't know. Like just get it out there. It's probably fine. <laughs> Thanks everybody for watching and we'll catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the legends of tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.